So before we get into the episode, um, just wanted to say, as usual, just a massive thank you to anybody who's shown any type of support to um, myself and the um, and the podcast. Um, it's it's amazing just receiving any type of review or um, uh, feedback or any kind of follow on on social media uh, and interaction on social media as well. It's it's um, it's really humbling to be able to. Um, yeah, just kind of interact with, with other people who have um, got similar kind of interests or, or a passion for something or a, a newly found passion for something. It's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, such a, it's such a good and positive thing to, to do. Um, so just a reminder, if you search for, um, for me, these films are the juice or these films are the juice on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, um, you'll be able to find find the podcast and, and follow it on any of those platforms and, and several more as well. Um, I record the, the podcast on Anchor um, and through Anchor you can find the the podcast on, on various platforms also. Um, the one big um, platform that I am distributing the, the podcast onto and I would ask anybody if they're happy to to, to kind of log into is Good Pods. On Good Pods, you can find and review your um, your favorite podcast episodes. So, whereas on Spotify, you can review the podcast, give it a five star review. That'd be amazing if you'd be happy to do that for me on Spotify. On Good Pods, you can find just a wealth of of different podcasts, and you can review. Uh, specific episodes of that podcast. Um, they have different charts which um, independent podcasts will rank in. Um, so the more you kind of listen to episodes on there and and rate them, the higher up the the rankings that they'll go. So if anybody's happy to do that on on Good Pods for myself and and the podcast, um, that would be great. So uh, yeah, look forward to interacting with more of you in the future. Thank you. Alright ramblers, let's get rambling. My name is Steve and thank you for listening. I watched No Country for Old Men for the first time in the on-campus cinema of the University of Mississippi, just after it won the Best Picture Oscar in February 2008. Javier Bardem's face and haircut were seared into my mind for days afterwards, but I found the ending slightly jarring. It wasn't the film's fault, I was still recovering from the Sopranos ending at that time. But after a rewatch, I realised how impactful the ending was, and that this film was definitely a modern day classic. I watched There Will Be Blood for the first time on 28th of November 2021, and have been randomly shouting, I've abandoned my child, ever since. I've owned it on DVD for years, but for some reason have always avoided it. I knew some of the famous scenes, and that Daniel Day-Lewis was supposed to be incredible, but wow. The film really does deliver and live up to the hype of possibly the best film of the 2000s. So here we go. There will be blood versus no country for old men. Let's do it. This is going to be a new style podcast episode and layout for me. Um, It's going to be different from the ones I've done before where I've done kind of a deep dive into individual films. Um, So it Obviously, it's going to be a head-to-head between There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. So how I'm going to do it is I've got um, eight 
different categories that I'm going to compare the, the two films within. Uh, and those eight categories are divided into, into two. One measurable and one immeasurable. So the measurable ones are, are those uh, categories that you can look into and, and literally see who got the most or, um, you know, there's a clear winner within them. So the measurable categories are the uh, budget box office, uh, the awards, um, the reviews that, that the film received when it was when it was released and the legacy. So basically how the films are looked back on, uh, what kind of reverence they have now. The immeasurable categories um, are basically just my opinion uh, on on watching the films now uh, and just kind of which ones I uh, which ones I prefer within within the category. Um, so they were broken down into script, specific scenes. So I'm going to pick one specific scene from for each uh, each film to look into. Uh, the ending scenes and the making of the film slash the performances within them as well. Okay, the first measurable category is the budget to box office. So it's basically the budget of the film compared to the, uh, the, the amount of money that it made at the box office. So for No Country for Old Men, uh, well, actually both of the films uh, had a budget of $25 million. Uh, no Country for Old Men uh, gained $171.6 million at the box office, whereas There Will Be Blood received $76.2 million at the box office. So obviously both, both um, films did well at the box office, but you're looking at almost 100 million more made by No Country for Old Men. Um, obviously, a 25 million budget to 171 million uh, box offices is very good in terms of percentages. But uh, on the Rewatchables podcast for No Country for Old Men, I think Chris Ryan said that it was the third lowest um, uh, box office for a best uh, best picture winner. Um I think that's behind. I think that's in front of Crash and uh, The Hurt Locker, so still not amazing for a for Best Picture winner, but still a very healthy return on the box office. With regards to the seventy six million made by There Will Be Blood, to be completely honest, I don't think that's too surprising. I think if you look at the box office of all Paul Thomas Anderson films, none of them have been particularly spectacular. They've all done well, but they've none of them been particularly spectacular because of the type of films that he makes. Um, you know, a lot of them sometimes you can't see in a normal multiplex. You have to go to your local art cinema, which probably has a less, um, you know, you're gonna, there's going to be less attendance at that than a multiplex. I can't believe this show. I was so disappointed to see that um, Licorice Pizza isn't being shown at, um, at the local cinemas here in Plymouth. Um, potentially it's going to be at the art cinema. I did tweet them. They said, fingers crossed, it's going to be shown in March. Uh, at the arts at the art cinema so i'm definitely going to see it there but yeah really disappointed that it's not being shown at the um uh, at the view or the uh cinema world here in plymouth so uh but anyway first category in the measurables budget box office that's a win for no country for old men so the next category in the measurables um is the awards received so No Country for Old Men did incredibly well in this award season when it was released. Uh, in total, it was nominated for 109 different awards and won 76 of them. Of those 76, the biggies were um, four Oscars, which was Best Film, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. All those categories, no, There Will Be Blood were also nominated in, so they beat, beat out no, um, There Will Be Blood in all three of those categories. And No Country also won a 
Best Supporting Actor, Oscar for Javier Bardem as well. Um, at the BAFTAs and at the Golden Globes, um, Javier Bardem won the Best Supporting Actor. Um, so yeah, Javier Bardem, really similar to um, Daniel Day-Lewis in kind of sweeping the awards for Best Supporting Actor. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis did it for the Best Actor Awards. Um, at the BAFTAs, No Country for Old Men also won Best Cinematography and uh, Best Director for the Coens. And um, in America, they also have different guilds uh, of awards that are uh, given out every year. So they have the Director's Guild, um, so the directors up against each other. No Country for Old Men, Coens won that one. Producers Guild, once again, um, the Coens and Scott Rudin won that for No Country for Old Men. And the Writing Guild's Award, Adapted Screenplay, again, head-to-head with each other. Coen Brothers won that one for um, for No Country for Old Men too. And at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, um, <clears throat> No Country for Old Men won the best cast. There Will Be Blood wasn't nominated in that category, um, so they weren't head-to-head in that one, but they still won that one. And again, Javier Bardem won the uh, the best supporting actor. Um, there will be blood. Yeah, again, won it won two Oscars. Um, best actor, obviously for Daniel Day Lewis. Also, best cinematography. Um, at the Oscars, that beat out. Um, No Country for Old Men. But other than that, um, especially in the biggies, the Baftas, the Golden Globes, and the Screen Actors Guilds Awards. Um, Daniel Day Lewis won best actor. Um, but they lost out, the film lost out to No Country for Old Men in almost every other category. So, again, on that one, for the awards received, Coen Brothers take it, No Country for Old Men beats out There Will Be Blood. So that's 2-0 to No Country for Old Men. Both films were thought of very highly when they first came out, uh, as well as in their legacy looking back at them. Um, I'm going to take a look at um, three different uh, reviewers, film reviewers that I often look to for reviews of films and their thoughts on films. So I always find um, certain reviews quite interesting to to look at, and um, yeah, just kind of see how they compare. So the first critic will be um, probably my favourite British critic, which is Mark Kermode. Um, anyone who doesn't listen to the Kermode and Mayo Mayo podcast, um, please go and give that a listen to. That's it's always really. Um, always a really interesting listen. Um, so Mark Kermo basically said uh, of No Country for Old Men, the film was a deserving winner uh, of this year's Best Picture Oscar, being off strong competition from Juno and There Will Be Blood. So maybe not potentially saying that No Country for Old Men is better than There Will Be Blood, but saying it's a deserving winner um, being off those two. So obviously he didn't have any problems with it, with it winning. Um, so I'll kind of score that one as a... As one in the box for for No Country for Old Men. Um, Empire Online or The Empire Magazine. uh, I was always a huge reader of and um, collected so many many magazines over a a good kind of five, six year period. The review in The Empire Magazine for No Country for Old Men gave it five out of five stars and said that what surprises is how the film remains both recognisably McCarthy's terse and sorrowful parable, plus a Cohen's enterprise bathed in oil-black humour. Um, by McCarthy, they mean Cormac McCarthy, who wrote No Country for Old Men, uh, and whose book um, the Cohen brothers adapted into the screenplay for uh, for the film. Um, as I say, they gave it five out of five stars, a glowing review of the film. Uh, Empire Online also 
said of uh, There Will Be Blood, they also gave it five out of five stars um, and gave it a really glowing uh, review as well. Um, just one line from it is, uh, it won't come to you immediately, but this may be a masterpiece of There Will Be Blood, which I think we can all agree is, is definitely the case. Another um, critic that I often, uh, yeah, uh, take an interest in what they think on films it was Roger Ebert. So No Country for Old Men, he was, he he thought was magnificent. He gave it four stars out of four, um, and said No Country for Old Men is as good a film as the Coen Brothers have ever made, and they made Fargo. Uh, many of the scenes are so flawlessly constructed that you want that you want them to simply continue, and yet they create an emotional suction drawing you to the next scene. Which I can definitely see what he means by that. You know, there are certain scenes in there where you're so kind of just gripped, and you're just like, oh, this i just need this to to continue and then you're like oh no okay it is going into the next scene yeah let's see where the where the story goes of there will be blood he also did like that film um but he gave it three and a half out of four stars uh just one thing i picked out of his review for this one was he actually compared the two um so of there will be blood he said i'm not sure of its greatness it was filmed in the same area of texas used by no country for old men and that is a great film and a perfect one, but There Will Be Blood is not perfect, and in its imperfections we may see its reach exceeding its grasp, which is not a dishonourable thing. So I think he's trying to say that obviously the film just didn't quite get there in terms of the, you know, it's got a lot of heady themes within it, um, and was maybe just trying to reach a little bit too much into being a, an epic, and maybe just didn't quite get there, but was kind of a, you know, a spectacular failure in doing that in that you know it's still a, still a great film um so yeah i think just kind of over the the critical reviews of it at the time i think i've got market to no country for old men again um just by obviously roger ebert giving it one less half star and just that extra bit from mark kermode about um no country being a, a deserved winner of the best best picture oscar so Bit of a landslide, no country for old men so far. 3 0 to no country for old men over. There will be blood. The final uh, measurable category is the legacy of each film. Um, now, I wondered the best way to, to measure this, really. Um, so, what I did was I looked at some, um, some kind of, you know, lists of, you know, best films of the of the debt of the century so far best uh films of the decade the noughties um and just some kind of like uh look backs at the at the film um what i also did was i put a i put a poll out on my um uh on my twitter handle uh films are the juice where these films are the juice and um i also uh, put a poll on the Facebook group All Things Movies, which is a group um, run by Wayne and Jesse from the Recasted podcast. So uh, again, another shout out to those guys. Thank you so much for, um, yeah, kind of having making somewhere for for people to put their ideas and thoughts about about films and, and communicate with each other. Um, just another demonstration of how um, great those guys are and people collaborating and and having a platform to. Um, to kind of market themselves and, and present themselves. So again, thank you very much to those guys. That's the All Things Movies group on Facebook. Um, definitely worth a look on that one. Um, so I put a poll on there and and on my Twitter as well. And I was quite um surprised in the in the results of the um of the poll. So 
between both polls, um, no country for Open won, won both. Um, but in total, um, there were 70 votes. So thank you to anybody who, who voted on that one. Really appreciated. So there were 70 votes, 50 for No Country for Old Men, and 20 for um, There Will Be Blood. So that was a 71% win for No Country for Old Men, which I was really surprised about. I thought it would be a lot closer than that. Um, a lot closer than 71 to, to 29% uh, on, on that one. So obviously from, um, you know, Joe Public, um, people who... Uh, enjoy films. Um, no country for old men is the um, has the greater has the greater legacy out of the out of the two films. Um, but then I looked at the the Guardian, uh, and they put out an article called the the films um, the films of the of the noughties. Um, in that one, there will be blood was number one, and no country for old men was rated at number fifteen. Um, so so a bit of a difference difference there um empire magazine do their 100 greatest movies uh vote for for their readers every now and then i think it's every might be every five years maybe five or six years um the last one they did was in 2018 and on that list there will be blood was number 43 and no country for old men was number 87 so again quite a bit of a difference between the the placings of the films in that one that is again that is voted for by by the readers of, of Empire Magazine and Empire Online. And they also did, um, back on the 30th anniversary, I can't remember what year that was now, forgive me, it might have been 2018 as well. No, it would have been 2019, sorry. Um, so it was the films that defined the 30 years of, of Empire Magazine, so starting in 1989. Uh, um, so the films that define each year. And for 2007, um, that was No Country for Old Men. I'm sure that was quite a close call between that and There Will Be Blood. Um, but but No Country for Old Men came out on that one. Also as well, um, I've mentioned the Rewatchables and the Big Picture podcast before. On that, um, the, the host of the Big Picture uh, podcast and also um, a major collaborator to the, to the Rewatchables podcast is Sean Fennessy, um, who is a huge, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, Coen Brothers fan real kind of encyclopedic knowledge of film his um film of this century is there will be blood and the way he talks about it and the reverence he he kind of talks about it with um yeah i don't know it just makes a real strong argument that it is possibly the film of the possibly of this of this century so far um, so I'm going to call this one a draw between the, I'm going to make an executive decision uh, and call this one a draw between these two, um, There Will Be Blood and, and No Country for Old Men, because I know that No Country ran away from it, ran away with it in the in the poll. But I just think with the way that they are both looked at overall, it is a little bit too close to call, really, um, as to as to which one it has the greater legacy. So I'm going to go with um with no country i'm sorry i'm gonna go with the draw between there will be blood and no country for old men in the legacy category of the of the measurables so that's the end of the measurable section uh of the comparison between these two films and at the moment um no country for old men is well ahead of there will be blood so no country for old men uh won the budget box office category the awards category and the reviews category and uh in legacy it was a draw so we have No Country for Old Men three and a half and There Will Be Blood just a half. Um, 
so as I say, that's the end of the, the measurable section. We're now going to go into the immeasurable section, um, which the categories will be the script, uh, specific scenes, endings, and the general filmmaking and performances within the films as well, which um, these will just be kind of my opinions on which ones, uh, which film I think maybe comes out on top in these in these categories. Um, so yeah, let's get into the immeasurable um section and we'll talk about the scripts first of all. No Country for Old Men was adapted by the Coen brothers from the novel of the same name written by Cormac McCarthy in 2005. Um, again, I haven't read this this novel. Um, that is something I need to do is, is kind of read more, especially um, books that have made in films. But I remember on the uh, No Country for Old Men rewatchables episode, um, which is a very good listen as well, by the way. Bill Hader's on it. He does a really good impression of um, Ted Levine in it. And um, yeah, just it's a very, very enjoyable episode. Um, Chris Ryan said that um, he'd read the book and it was very kind of quick. Kind of, you know, the book came out, then um, it was been, it was going to be made into a film. The Coen brothers were going to direct it. Josh Brolin was going to be in it, Javier Bardem was going to be in it, Tommy Lee Jones was going to be in it, and it was so yes, 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 it all kind of fit in perfectly. Um, it was the best kind of, you know, um, everything just kind of fit. You know, once the film was announced for, for adaptation, it's like, right, okay, yeah, that all makes sense. It's going to be a great film as well. Um, uh, so, yeah, it happened quite quickly, the the transition from the, the novel to the film. And um, in... In his book about the Coen brothers, this book really ties the films together. Adam Neyman says that he kind of go it goes into the the way that the Coen brothers were very um, self facing in the way that they said that they wrote the script. Um, so he says that um, both directors joked that writing the screenplay was simply a matter of holding the spine of the book open flat, as if they were just adding stage directions to the author's Spartan prose. He goes on to say that their scrupulous that they are they're scrupulously faithful to their source material, but they make they make sure to leave their mark on the story as well, which is which is very true. So I think it's it's safe to say that it is a very faithful adaptation from the book to the film. Um and a lot of the so apparently in the film each chapter begins with um some kind of inner monologue from Tommy Lee Jones' characters, he's character, he's kind of the narrator of the book. And obviously the film starts that way. It starts with a narration by um, Tommy Lee Jones' Sheriff Bell. Um, and obviously the film ends with him as well um, in that great ending scene that we talked about. Um, but you've obviously... And, and the Coen brothers also um, stated that they... They also stated that... Coen stated that they have not changed much in the adaptation. It really is just compression. He said we didn't create new situations. So Adam Neyman kind of went on to say that there were there were parts of the book that were were taken out by the Coens. Um, so they did com compress it down to try and make it um, uh, more suitable for a film. Um, but you can just tell there are situations and scenes in the films where the the Coen brothers have added their special type of. Uh, script and um, their special type of 
Cohenisms that they've adapted that they've generated over their course of films. Um, so a lot of it is obviously Cormac McCarthy, but there are these they're made very Cohen-esque. Um, so you have the moments such as the um such as Llewellyn's back and forth with the first hotel receptionist when they're talking about prices and sizes of rooms, and it's just a very <clears throat> it's just a very Cohen-y kind of, you know, um awkward uh discussion between between the two characters uh and i think later on after that not long after that when sugar finds out that llewellyn is at that hotel um the first one that they go to you don't there's no dialogue in it but you just see a shot of him in the same receptionist room holding the the flyer with the the prices of the rooms as well so you know that the same conversation has been had um and it's yeah it's just a very very cohen moment um you also have sugars back and forth with the front desk um the woman on the front desk at the Wellens trailer park where he um i think he asks her three times where Llewellyn works and she's just very i can't divulge that information i can't give that information did you not hear me i can't give that information um yeah just again a very kind of funny cohen cohen scene as well um the mariachi band waking Llewellyn up when he's passed out, uh, when he's gone across the border into Mexico after he's had the, um, the lock shot into his stomach. Um, I, that has to be a Cohen moment as well. It seems, seems very Cohen-esque. And, um, again, Adam Neyman says in the book that Shakur's haircut, uh, is a sight gag on the order of George Clooney's pomade fetish, you know, brother, where art thou? Um, so it's just these, these bits added in to the script um that make it onto the film that just yeah is obviously it's having you know if you've read the book i'm sure you you know how close it is to the novel but that just make it you know a coen brothers film and obviously some of the as we kind of discussed in the, the call it scene and the ending scene there were some lines in there and and um and bits of dialogue that are just so profound um and really do stay with you after the after the film's uh, films ended as well so it is it is a great a great script and, and reflected in the fact that um you know it won the the writers guild award and the, and the oscar um as well so um uh in that year so yeah i don't think you can really argue with how how good a script it is and the the play the emotional places that it does take you um throughout the film paul thomas anderson adapted um, the screenplay for There Will Be Blood from a uh, novel by Upton Sinclair called Oil, um, which was released in 1927. Now, anytime you read about um, the adaption made by Paul Thomas Anderson, they'll always say it's a very loose adaptation of the book. Um, so the story goes that in around 2005, uh, an author called Eric Slosher um, bought the rights to um to make the the novel into a into a film uh not long after that paul thomas anderson was uh, was writing a different script about two feuding families um he was based in london at the time and basically just kind of except from from the reading it sounds like he um entered moments of of writer's block uh, and was feeling quite homesick being in london um and then he he just 
came upon the the novel um he was attracted to the um to the front cover of the book the kind of the california oil field being a, a california guy um yeah he he picked it up and and read it and you know uh decided to seek out um getting the rights to it himself so he got in contact with eric slosher and from that point i uh, was able to um to use the book to uh to adapt into his his screenplay now the um the novel is um i've not read the novel but the novel's apparently 528 pages and anderson just used the first 150 um as the basis and the loose adaptation for his screenplay um he's he's quoted as saying that when he was writing the um the script he had the the novel he had two or three of other other of his scripts that he'd been working on um he had uh notes from from elsewhere as well so there was a lot of different there were a lot of different aspects that were coming into the um that were coming into the to the screenplay that that Anderson was doing Again, in his book, um, Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, uh, Adam Naiman says, It's fascinating that the qualities that drew Slosher to oil are things that Anderson largely elides in his adaptation. He quotes uh, Paul Thomas Anderson in saying, We were really unfaithful to the book, Anderson admitted in 2008. That's not to say I didn't really like the book. I loved it. But there were so many other things floating around. So as I say, there were just so many other things that were impacting on the the story that um, Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to tell in his um, in his movie. Um, that yeah, obviously the, the basis to it was from the novel, but um, a lot of other things came into it. One other thing that that Adam Neiman also says in his book is that oil features a vast and diverse ensemble of characters. While There Will Be Blood is, despite its intermittent emphasis on H.W. and Eli, essentially a one-man show. So it was this. The the character of Eli apparently is is very, very loosely based on the character within within Oil. Um but the the character of HW um you know is is it seems to be a Paul Thomas Anderson invention in, uh, you know, himself. And, um, I understand what Adam Nameless is saying there because, um, you know, the, the film, as I kind of mentioned in the, in the awards section for the Screen Actors Guild Awards, wasn't actually nominated in the, the best ensemble, uh, uh, category at the Screen Actors Guild Awards. And I think a lot of that is because, it is often seen as a as Daniel Day Lewis kind of you know owns the film. He's pretty much in every single shot of the film, every single scene of the film, and it's him that kind of just casts this enormous shadow over the over the film, like a um, like a an oil uh, like an oil patch or an oil reservoir. Um, but I do have to say that I think. It does come into the. It does kind of connect to the writing that Paul Thomas Anderson did for the film because the character of Eli, I think, is 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 very very fascinating. You know, I I mentioned before that a lot of the a lot of the lines in the film are um are very multi layered and 
obviously Daniel Plainview is a very multi-layered character. Um, <clears throat> but Eli, I think, is a very multi-layered character as well. You know, his his relationship with his father, his relationship with his or not his twin brother, Paul. <laughs> not completely sure. Um, his relationship with his congregation, hit the way he... The way he acts, how much does he believe what he's talking about? How much is he just a, um, a false prophet? Um, I find him a very interesting character and definitely someone who, who stands out and is very memorable in the film, as you know, almost on the same level as Daniel Day Lewis. Even though Daniel Day Lewis's performance is is absolutely incredible, um, you know Henry is not in the film for very long, but I think he makes a big impact being in the film. He's very um. They talked about this on the Cinephiles episode, but he's very, very good at being understated and, and submissive um, and just wanting to, you know, he doesn't seem like a character who is wanting to get too much from from Daniel Plainview. He, you know, he wants a steady job and um, maybe he's trying to get in his good graces, but he's a very, he seems like quite a sweet character, even though he's obviously lying through his teeth to to Daniel. There's certainly layers to him as well. So I do understand what Adam Naiman is saying there, but um, I think Paul Thomas Anderson does do a good job in his script of, of multi-layering characters and, and giving them some subtext as well. Um, as for the screenplay, I, I think being loosely based on a on a, on a novel, as I say, is always is always mentioned. And but some of the lines that are in this film, I just they just really really stick with you, um, you know, almost become kind of catchphrases from the film. Obviously, I mentioned in the um, you know, the baptism scene, I've abandoned my child. The um, in the ending scene, you know, I drink your milkshake. Um, but other things within the film as well, you know, I'm an oil man. I have a kinti- I have a competition in me. I don't. I don't like to explain myself. I hate most people. Um, when that horrible scene at the end, when um, the HW's grown up and he says he's going to leave him, and he just he ends up just shouting, shouting at him down the corridor, "You're a bastard from a basket." Um, just these very small, short lines, but just so impactful throughout the film. Um, and also, I think just such good and brave writing for the opening of the film as well. You know, for the first, I think it's around about 15, 15 to 17 minutes of the film. Um, there's no dialogue in it. All the storytelling is done through what's on the script and, and the way they put it onto the film. So just the way that, you know, there's no dialogue, but you get to know Daniel Plainview and what his character is just from watching him work, just from watching him break his leg and crawl, um, however many miles to to get uh, a check for the the silver that he's mined um his mindset is the, the the amazing shot of him um hunched down drinking something with the the mountains in the in the background um the development of his of his business the way when um hw's father's killed down in the mine the the thought process that goes through Daniel Plainview when he um, kind of adopts HW. There's just so much being told and so much that's introducing you. There's so much of a of an amazing prologue, but without any dialogue. I think that's just that's also just great great writing. 
um, to be able to to project that to you as well. So um, so yeah, I think I think that um, it's an absolutely amazing script written by written by Paul Thomas Anderson. I think it it does it does for me just edge out No Country for Old Men for the um the kind of the greatest script um of the of the two films. The next category in the immeasurable section will be the classic scenes from No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood that I've decided to to analyse and look into a little bit further. The first one will be No Country for Old Men. So the scene I'm going to break down from No Country for Old Men is the call it scene at the gas station between Sugar and the owner of the of the gas station. Um, a couple of the other ones that I did think about were um, the hotel shootout between um, Llewellyn and Sugar and then Sugar fixing himself afterwards um, in the uh, in the hotel room. And also one of the final scenes between Sugar and uh, Carla Jean um, at the end of the film. Um, just all those, I mean, it's a, it's a film full of classic scenes, but those are the ones that kind of, um, yeah, I, I would really want to kind of take a deep dive into. But I went with the, with the call it scene because I think that was the one that really stuck with me when I first watched it. And it's always that one that kind of stands out to me um, whenever we do get to it. Or if I say I'm flicking channels and I see No Countries for... Roadman is on, I flick it on, and it's kind of anywhere near that scene. That's the one I'll I'll usually leave it on just to um just to watch it, or sometimes I'll fire it up on YouTube or something. Um just because it's so good. I think the reason is um that I just find it so affecting. I did <sighs> there's obviously not a lot going on it. It's a it's a scene last just about five minutes, maybe just under five minutes, and all it is, I think it's like four different shots. You got kind of two medium shots of the actors and two closer up shots of the actors. Um and then, and then I think there's a there's a close up on the um on the wrapper to to the food that um sugar has been eating. And it's just really simple, it's all just dialogue, nothing really happens. He flips a coin, obviously, as the most action that happens in it. Um but it's just the performances of the actors, the the setting. There's just you're so engrossed in what the, they're both saying, which is enough. It kind of gets you. It it just kind of ratchets up the tension. Um, but then when you kind of look into it even further, um, there's just so much going on in the in the scene, kind of under the surface as well. So, um, yeah, it's just a it's just one of those kind of great scenes from from film history, really. Um. So as I say, it's it's made up of, you know. Just minimal shots between the mainly just focusing on the on the two actors. The first thing you get is the um the owner of the of the shop uh, of the gas station. Now the actor's called Gene Jones, so I'll just refer to him as Gene when I'm speaking about him in the in the film. Um so the first shot you get is of is of Gene um standing behind the counter, making some notes. Um in front of a in front of a window and you can see some of the some of the things that he's got gone sale there so if you notice just above just above him in the window um i think they're um i think they're kind of cable ties or something just hanging from the from the roof um and they just look like a row of a row of nooses above him um 
so yeah maybe just a little bit of kind of foreboding there of oh maybe things aren't going to end well for for this guy um maybe it didn't end up like the um the police officer in the in the opening scene who arrests um who arrests Shigur. um he's framed by the the window behind him he's kind of uh he's kind of in the middle of it so there's a lot of natural light coming in from behind him um and his his face it's quite a dark um set scene but his face is kind of in light you can see him really well um kind of see the clothes he's wearing <clears throat> so yeah he's this kind of as i say it's it's very bright behind him as well so it's kind of like a figure of figure of innocence and also you can see he's a you know he's an older guy as well you know he's a he's an old man um a very kind of innocent you know just kind of as he says kind of passing the time and um just kind of standing there and and looking to do his job and he's also one of these actors who's a very he's a very coen brothers actor you know they have they're so good at at finding these these character actors to play these smaller roles in their films but they have such a, a look about them and a, and, a, and a sound and a way of delivering lines that they're very very memorable um and this is the and gene is gene jones is definitely one of these guys in for, for this film certainly um javier bardem comes up to the comes up to the counter now he him kind of setting wise is is kind of the opposite to to gene in this in this scene he's very even though he's not wearing all black that's how the that's how everything looks his face is in shadow um and yeah it's just very very dark very foreboding uh look to him very um just very kind of yeah just kind of foreboding of of something bad that might happen um and uh and as I say, Gene is just trying to pass the time and he makes an innocent comment to what he thinks is an innocent comment to um, to Sugar about his uh, asking if the weather's been bad in Dallas. Because that's where the plates are, the number plate on his um, on the truck or the car that he's driving is from. And just Javier Bradham's face just changes. Just like, what business is it of yours? And he's so shocked and perturbed and, and taken aback. Gene's like didn't mean nothing by it and Bardem does takes it up another notch of you know he's been kind of aggressive towards him but then he takes it up, a, up another notch by being mocking towards him thinking it didn't mean nothing taking the mick out of his um the way he talks um and it just as I say it just kind of the actors build it slowly the Coen brothers build it slowly and to this point, you haven't really seen Shakur um, really interact with anyone like that. Um, you know, most of the people he's met, he's just murdered. Um, but he's having a conversation with this with this guy. And as I say, Gene says, you know, he's just passing the time. And it's this, this as the scene goes on, it's this notion of, of time again, you know, um, Sugar is asking personal questions about, you know, what he's done with his life, where he's come from, uh, have you always lived here? Um, talking about the, the, 
the coins tra been traveling for 22 years. There's a lot of talk about about time. And the thing I always get from it is, does Shakura think that this guy has, you know, has wasted his life, has wasted time? Um, that maybe he hasn't earned anything in his life. The way he puts it, he married into running the um, the gas station. I don't know. It's just a, it's just a you know, it's a, it's a theme of the film, and 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 it's definitely shown up in this in this scene as well. Um. I like the, I like how, um, you know, the Coens, you know, they're very, even in, you know, their most serious films there, they have got those comic touches within it as well. Um, so there's a little release valve in, in this scene when, um, when Javier Bardem is, is asking him when he goes to, asking Gene when he goes to bed. And, uh, he says he could come back then when he, um, when the, when the shop's closed <laughs> and Gene just says, why would you be coming back then? We'd be closed. Um, as if, you know, what, do you, what would you want? Um, it's just the way he delivers that is, is funny. And um, and as as the scene goes on as well, you, you obviously you might notice it straight away, but again, behind behind Gene outside is this, um, I'm not too sure what it is, a, a, a tractor or something, or a, an old piece of machinery that looks potentially like it's, you know, it's old, it's it's broken down, it's it's not working. It's kind of just a it's kind of just a representation of how I think it's a representation of how Sugar sees sees this man. You know, he's an old he's an old man. Broken down, can't really do anything anymore, useless. Should he just put him out of his misery? Um but in his his warped mind he needs to give him a he needs to give him a chance. So, um, so after he's spoken to him um, a little bit, asked some questions, found out everything he needs, choked on his whatever he's eating when he's when Gene when Gene told him that his um, the gas station was originally owned by his wife's parents, and um, Javier Bardem is just you know, disgusted and and chokes on his whatever he's eating, and is like, "You married into it? As in, you married into this? This is what's become of your life." Um, and then there's this, and then there's just this great bit where he scrunches up the, the packet. He's finished eating. He scrunches up the packet and he just leaves it on the on the counter, and it just starts to unfurl slightly. And it's just this is what's going to happen to Gene. He's just going to be a, he's just going to be squished, by um, by sugar in, in in the next couple of moments. But as I say, in his his kind of warped mind, no, this guy should be given a chance, you know, or a second chance maybe um to uh to save his life <laughs> and, it's the, and he flips the coin and he just kind of closes his eye and there's this look of resignation it's like he thinks he, he thinks he's gonna have to kill this guy by by his weird moral code that he has and it, it's almost like he doesn't want to or doesn't you know it just kind of like <sighs> call it call it yes just just call it as in like let's just get this over with um the way that he plays that bit i think is is great and then just these just these profound things that then Sugar says to to Gene, you know, just to just to make him realise how it's come to this point. Um, Gene says he didn't put anything up, and Sugar he's just very almost soft in the way he talks. But he's like, "Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. 
Do you know what date is on this coin? 1958. It's been travelling 22 years to get here. Now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say it, call it. I don't know, it's just very kind of profound the way he says it. You know, it's it's been travelling for, for 22 years. Um, and it's randomly come here. It's down to this, well, obviously it's down to sugar, but it's down to this this coin as to whether Gene keeps keeps traveling in in through time as well or if it stops right here um similar to similar to Shigur himself as I say he's, he's dressed all in dark he looks like you know like death personified you know the way he's dressed the way he's shadowed the way he's completely random as well you know he he kills people randomly he you know he just turns up um he can turn up at any time like the coin to to end end your life you know um it's just it's almost he's talking about himself as well and then when um when gene calls it correct that's heads and the way um bardem says well done it's almost as if he's really happy for gene you know it's like, well done you know um there's a relief you know kind of there's a you almost feel there's a big like, <sighs> within the film you know gene's obviously relieved um you know the way sugar is he's he seems to be quite happy for him as well um, I did listen to, I can't, I can't remember who it was, I do apologise, I saw a video on YouTube, I'll try and find out who it was and, and mention it next time, but um, he kind of said, the, the guy who who did this video was talking about, he was doing kind of a breakdown of this scene, and he kind of said how there was this, from the point of, I think, the the packet being squeezed on the on the counter to the point where um, it has heads and... and um, Sugar says, well done. There's this very, almost, you almost can't hear it, this kind of background uh, sound that kind of just builds, helps build up this this kind of tension to it. And it kind of feels that way. Literally when they, he, take, he just says, well done, it's just like, oh, it almost feels like the, the film breathes out and, and and takes a breath at that point as well. And, um, and yeah, and, and just the final bit where he says, um, he tells Gene not to put the coin in his pocket um, because, you know, this coin now is similar to how, you know, Gene might have just been, his life might have been ended. The life of this coin is now ended. It's, it needs to, it needs to stop. It needs, it needs to stop here with Gene. It needs to, it needs to remember that this is his lucky coin and this is what has made him live the rest of his life. And he just says to him, uh, don't put it in your pocket. Again, mixed in with the others and become just the coin, which it is. And then he does that peculiar kind of eyebrow raised look at, at Gene and walks out it's just very ambiguous you know he's talking about a lot of different things at that point um and walks away and I think it's just that to, to me it's just that represent representation of anything can happen randomness you know this this coin's been traveling it's ended up in Shakira's pocket and then it's the deciding thing on whether this guy's going to live for the rest is going to continue to live on that day or not but at the end of the day it is still a coin it's nothing more than that but it mean, but it means so much more than that to, or it should mean so much more than that to, to Gene now um, it's just great stuff you know everything about it the just the, the setting the simplicity the, the performances um it's a really and it just it has that ten, it has everything in it that kind of sucks you in builds the tension up you feel your shoulders getting up and then when it is uh, 
heads. Just, oh, this guy, we're not going to have to see this guy kind of have his head exploded with the uh, the weird gas canister that um, that Sugar's got. Um, so yeah, it's just a, I think the the standout scene from the film and um, just brilliantly acted by the by the two actors. I think. The scene I'm going to go into um, from there will be blood is the um, baptism scene of Daniel Plainview done by Eli Sunday. Um, now, I will, will apologise in advance. Um, I will be um, uh, bringing out some very strong um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis impressions. Not very, I'm not saying they're very good at all, but um, I have enjoyed kind of trying to get into the um, Daniel Plainview voice. So, um, so yeah, I will uh, I will be partaking in that. So I'll try not to make it too loud. So there are many ones here, but just wanted to let you know. Um, so this scene is, is kind of like, when you watch the film, there's like three rounds. It's like a fight between Daniel Plainview and, um, and Eli Sunday. Uh, you know, kind of like physical confrontations between them. Um, so this is round two. The first, the first round was when, um, so Eli Sunday comes up to Daniel just after the, um, the Derek explosion and um hw has lost his lost his hearing and eli comes up to him um in front of daniel's colleagues and just said where's our money where's my money daniel very ins- very insensitively and, and daniel just slaps him and pushes him down into the into the mud and the oil and um just kind of yeah completely um just embarrasses him and and uh yeah, slaps him around in in front of people and, and makes him not want to make him not want to cross Daniel again or hopefully um, not cross Daniel again. Then this is the uh, second altercation between them, and then the third one is obviously at the at the end of the film, which I'll obviously talk about uh, in a bit as well. Um, so just in build up to this, so Daniel has um, been woken up by. Um, Mr. Bandy, uh, who owns the piece of land that, that Daniel doesn't, uh, which he needs to build his pipeline to be able to take the oil from um, from where he is to the to the coast so that it can be shipped. Um, Daniel is, is woken up after a night of heavy drinking, after a night where he's murdered somebody, the um, the imposter who's pretended to be his brother and has yeah has read his brother's diary and and kind of broken down and had a had a had a tough night really um so he's woken up after that by by mr bandy and straight away daniel's trying to say to him that he'll give him any amount of money he wants to to buy his land um but mr bandy says no i want you to uh to come to the church and um and repent um for the for your sins um the sins that you committed so here we go we're at the um we're at the church of the of the third revelation and we hear eli talking and the first thing he says is i truly i truly wish everyone could be saved don't you now paul dano just his you know obviously he performs within his his sermons you know he's you you, you see him in the film practicing his performances and, and the intensity with which he does perform to people um but this is it sounds like a performance it sounds very very um insincere it's a very insincere delivery of the of that um 
yeah, I don't think he does. I don't think he does. I don't specifically. I don't think he wants Daniel to be, um, to be saved. Um, in this moment, and um, he says, uh, there is a sinner here worth um looking for salvation, or is there a sinner here looking for salvation? And we cut to, to Daniel, and he's just looking down, this kind of resigned wide-eyed look on his face of just i don't know what's going to happen i can't believe it's come to this and he doesn't say anything he's just completely blank and then you cut to eli and he smirks he's enjoying this he knows how difficult this is for for daniel and how hard it is so he's starting to he he's enjoying this so he says i'll say it again is there a sinner here looking for salvation and daniel daniel stands up and he's he gives his Mr. Bandy asks says he'll take his hat from him. He's stripping away his um you know, he's not in his he hasn't got his suit jacket on, he hasn't got his hat on, he isn't near his um his his men who work for him. Um, you know, he's stripped away of, of everything. It's just him himself naked up there. Um sp- who will be speaking to God, um uh, and and Eli. So he goes up, and the way that it's the way that Paul Thomas Anderson frames it is Daniel Day Lewis is stood in the middle of the frame with the cross almost behind him, literally coming out the top of his head. It's that you know, it's the imagery of you know, it's like. The light shining out the top of the head, the, the fire is burning out the top of Daniel Day Lewis's head. It's the, you know, it's the the oil derrick that he's been erecting. But this is the building that Eli's uh, erected, standing above Daniel. Um, it's just very, you know, it's it's a very. There's not a lot happening in the, in the scene, kind of setting wise, but it's all very. It hits you. You know what they're they're trying to represent here. Um, and the, and the, the the cross is completely in in daylight daylight shining in from from the back, and um, Daniel Day Lewis isn't lit very brightly. You can see him. There's no hiding from it. Everyone can can see him and see what he's about to do. So Eli stands next to to Daniel and he says, "Are you a sinner?" And there's a hesitation, and Eli kind of softly puts his hand on the back of. Uh, on Daniel's back, where softly says, "Go ahead and speak to him. It's all right." Daniel says, "Yes," and then very sternly demanding, Eli changes from the soft to the demanding. Says, "Down on your knees." So Daniel gets down. He's in obviously he's on his knees. He's in a very submissive submissive position to Eli, and he decides. And Eli says, "Look up to the sky and say it," and then oh, and then Daniel looks up at him. And, he, and it's almost as if looking for, for help. He is literally looking for help. He's asking him a question. He's like, what, what do you want me to say? And he asks, you know, he says, he's he's brought these good things to the um, to the city, but he's also brought his bad habits. He's backslided, uh, backslided. He's lied. He's lusted after women. Um, and he says he's abandoned his child. Now, just at that point, Daniel Day Lewis, his his jaw just clenches, um, 
and his lip and his chin are just slightly quivering. He's starting to, you know, he's he's trying to hold it together, but just that uh, you've abandoned your child, it starts to just kind of break him down. And then he repeats some of the things that Eli wants him to say. Within it, Eli mentions about him abandoning his, his child again. And then the third time that Eli says it, he says, I have abandoned my child. Day Lewis is looking up at Eli and the look on his face that he get the look that he gives to, to Eli. I mean I I swear I, I swear at that point when he's looking at him, he's decided that one day he's gonna murder him for for this, for making him do this. That it's just the look of just complete just hatred on his face. So literally if looks could kill. Um and then he just looks down and you can feel it, you can feel it coming, feel it erupting. Feel it building. And then um Dano just sounds like a he starts to sound like an animal. It's like he's hissing at Daniel Day Lewis, like, say it. Say it. And then DDL just sorry, DDL, that's what I've got in my notes, DDL. Daniel Day Lewis just erupts. Um I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my child! I've abandoned my boy! And then um it's that you know, that's the you know, that's it, that's the the moment, you know, that if if you're wondering, you know, at that point, if if this is a an Oscar-winning performance from from Daniel Day Lewis, he just brings it out right there. Um, uh, in his book, uh, Masterworks about Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Adam Neiman um, just says it much better than I than I certainly could about this that moment uh, in this scene. He says the guilty, breathless inflection when he changes from saying "I've abandoned my child" to "I've abandoned my boy." transubstantiates the physical reality of an oil of an oil strike into spoken language the words my boy dredge up feelings of paternal love and perhaps a god-fearing humility that daniel would rather keep buried now that struck me that really struck me when when i read that from from the book um that adam wrote um because it is it's just that that's that eruption again the the cross is is just above his head it almost looks like that the fire that was coming out of the derrick earlier in the film it's just that complete eruption there and then straight away after that bit daniel says do you want the blood and and he's and daniel's gone he's he's completely he's either uh, like um adam Neyman said he's um this this kind of god-fearing humility that he tries to keep buried he's just like he talks to eli and and god as if they're the same person he says give me the blood eli and let me get out of here give me the blood lord and let me get away he just he's desperate to leave he doesn't he hates these things that he's feeling right now but then daniel slaps him he slaps day lewis and it's literally like that slap is just like a boom brings brings Daniel right back because then he's smiling, he's smiling and he's he likes it because he's re- he, he's just realised it's taking him out of that thing where it's this is a this is a baptism this is what he has to go through this is all a facade this is um, Eli 
wanted to get his own back on on Daniel. He's wanting to publicly humiliate him like he did to, to Eli earlier in the film. And it kind of just snaps him out of that, you know, potentially God-fearing mindset and having to face the feelings of paternal love for, for HW and just realising this is this is all just the show. This is all just him, um, Eli, his facade dropping of this this rubbish that he that he spouts and it's really it's just his his own payback um <clears throat> so so yeah he you know he slaps him he pulls his hair and you know daniel day lewis is just is just saying oh let me feel it Eli. let me feel the feel the power of feel the power of the lord um and he's almost mo and then he's almost just mocking in his in the way he talks them and um just as they're about to uh to baptize him he says do you want do you... <laughs> he's like do you want the do you want the blood and just it just the way he delivers this line daniel day lewis goes yes i do it's just like yeah come on give it to me and then when he um he pours the water on him day lewis just does this thing. he's like a dog just shaking it off he's like <laughs> like this um again it's just completely mocking of the situation and then it's still close up on, on Day Lewis and he puts his head down, shakes the water off, rises up, he's got a smile on his face. And this to me was very um very symbolic, very kind of, you know, almost biblical. He just and he just says, There's a pipe there's a pipeline. He's like he's done what he's needed to do. He's he's gone through this penance, he's gone through this whatever he's had to be put through. He's like, There's a pipeline. It just almost made me think of, you know, Jesus on the cross saying, you know, it's it's finished when he realized that he's he's done what he needed to do um and he's got what he was told was going to happen um yeah it just it kind of really really kind of hit home at that point um and then just this next bit is just so it's it's quite a small bit but he that daniel stands up and he goes over to eli and he gives him what looks like a really strong handshake and he gets really close to him and he says obviously says something to him and just look on Eli's face of just wow what's just happened and this maybe this look of fear and maybe a realization of that Daniel knows about his bullshit and that this was just all kind of payback um but you don't know what he said to him and it I what I like to think that he said to him is something along the lines of you know one day Eli one day I'm gonna get you for this or something along those those kind of lines um because i think he's he's you know he know he's just i'm gonna like i said with that look earlier he's like i'm gonna get this kid i'm gonna get him um so yeah that's that's kind of what i like to think is is happened and then daniel comes back through the congregation he's you know a lot of people patting him on the back and give him a hug and and then he sits down in the in the pews again and mary comes up behind him and hugs him and kisses him and embraces him uh as one of their um as one of the congregation and then that's that's the end of the scene um yeah wow i mean what a, what a scene um again it's you know it's similar to the call it's scene. it's you know maybe four minutes or so it's not a very long scene but it's um it's just so powerful you know and it's so 
you know, it's lit completely differently from the call that's seen. That was quite dark. Seeing this is very bright. Um, you know, they're both so good. They've got so much kind of go both scenes got so much going on underneath them, but this there will be blood scene. Um really stays with you, you know, just the the subtle changes in in character, the subtle changes in um what you think they're getting from this and why they're doing this. Um I, I just think it's great. It's a it's a scene that really kind of I think will always stick with me and I'll always kind of rewatch as well. So I think this this scene from There Will Be Blood just edges it for me. Um in the head to head between There Will Be Blood and uh, and No Country for Old Men. So um best scene between these two films. Baptism scene from There Will Be Blood. So those were two amazing scenes. Um, to kind of dive into a little bit deeper. Uh, they're scenes that I, I'll watch individually on YouTube from time to time. Because uh, I'm sad like that. I do look at um, certain scenes on YouTube from time to time. Um, and yeah, now it's going to be two amazing scenes again. That will be great to to dive into a little bit deeper. We're going to go into the two ending scenes from these uh, two amazing films. The first up will be No Country for Old Men. I said in the opening that I found when I originally watched uh, No Country for Old Men, I found the the ending a bit jarring. Um, the kind of the, just the sudden cut to black, um, the abruptness of it, I found it a little bit jarring. Um, but as I say, after rewatching it a few times and and you know up to now, it's it is a it is a great ending. It's a great way to to finish the film. It's it's very. Um, it's very on point with the, the themes of the film. And um, when I was really looking at the the ending scene um, for, for the podcast and, and um, studying it, there were a few lines from previous in the film that really just kind of, I thought, just kind of reverberated into the, into the ending of the film. So there was a couple of lines from, from Tommy Lee Jones opening uh, monologue at the start of the film um he says i always like to hear about the old timers never miss a chance to do so so he'd always hear he'd always listen to the stories told by his dad and um uh, and other colleagues of his about the the older generation of of policemen and, and sheriffs um never miss a chance to do so he he kind of you know he looks back at that time fondly when he hears about it maybe slight jealousy to it um maybe it was a simpler time or time made more sense and then he also says a man would have to be sorry a man would have to put his soul at hazard and say okay i'll be a part of this world so it's that it's that thing of this is where i am in time this is how the world is there's nothing i can do to change it and I want to try and do a good thing as a sheriff. I want to be a good influence. I want to uphold the law. I want to do what the old timers did. So, okay, I'll live in this world as it is now. Or be a part of this world as it is now. Not looking back at how it used to be. Those were just two lines that really kind of struck me. Struck me, Especially when I was listening to the, to the ending part of the film. And then one of the scenes prior to to the ending when he goes to visit the other old um the other 
uh, older law enforcement chap, and he just says, this country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. Obviously, that refers to so much within the film. Again, talking, going back to the the call it scene um, of you know talking about time, talking about things traveling to you, thing, things coming to you. You can't stop them. It's it's random. It's it's just it's going to happen. Um, I don't know. Just the themes of the the film are, are wrapped up in those in those couple of um, couple of lines from the film. And then just reflected in the in the final scene, I think. Um, so the final scene, we have Tommy Lee Jones sitting at the breakfast table, just looking off into the into the distance, not looking at the at the camera, looking off to the left. And he has a full plate of food in front of him, um, full glass of orange juice, full cup of cup of coffee, possibly. He hasn't touched any of it. He looks like he's kind of in his own world. Um, dressed in just street clothes. He's he's obviously retired now. Um, doesn't have to doesn't have to go to work anymore. And again, he's framed similar to the the gas station scene. He's framed in a in a window with the outside light coming in towards him. That you know that kind of look of innocence about him. Again, an old man. This look of uh, an old man. With the, with the light shining in on him. And just next to him, in the garden, through the window, you can see a, an old tree, twisted, bent. Um, again, possibly a, a reflection of, of Tommy Lee Jones himself, of his age, of his body not being what it was, his body being a bit twisted and bent and potentially of no use anymore. Um, so he's in his own world and his wife comes. She's eating her breakfast. She's she's drank her drink. She's filled her drink up again. Um, and he's he's again he's just looking off, and you think, and it just reflects back to the the scene with Carla Jean earlier in the in the film where he just says that his mind wanders when he talks about different things. That's what that's what I thought of at that point. Um, you know his wife his wife obviously isn't being mean to him. But his wife, you know, rejects him a couple of times in, in what he's saying he wants to do for the day. He said he wants to go horse riding and, and does she want to come with him? And she says, no, I'm not retired. I can't do that. Um, you know, he wants to be with her. Um, he says, OK, maybe I'll. Um, maybe I'll help out here then. And she says, oh, better not. So again, he kind of, you know, he doesn't have any purpose. He's being you know, told he's he's of no use to, to do that and she doesn't want to be with him. It's, again, it's, she's not being mean, it's just her. She's obviously got things to do, she's busy. Um, but, you know, she has a purpose in her, in her life and maybe he doesn't anymore. Um, and then it goes into the, to his dreams that he had the, the night before. Um, he says they were both about his, both about his dad. And he says it's it's funny. I'm I'm older now than in tw by twenty years than he ever was. So in essence, he's the younger man again. Just this theme of age. He's the he's the younger guy. He's the um, and he's dead as well. He's it's a no country for old men. His dad wasn't an old man when he died. Um, 
you know, he died at that point when, before he became useless or, um, when the world has changed and he doesn't belong in it anymore. So, uh, Tommy Lee Jones goes to talk about his, his, his dreams. Um, and he says of his second ones that, his second one that it was like they were in older times and they were on horseback going through a mountain and his dad was, was rode, rode on ahead of him and he was carrying fire and a horn like they used to. Again, he's talking about the past, the old times, the old timers. He, he likes to think about that. He likes to think about those, maybe those simpler times or harder times, you know, um, which, whichever way you look at it. Um, and he has a purpose in his dream. He has a purpose in, his dream, a purpose in his dream to find his father. And obviously it makes him emotional. He's talking about his dad. Um, as Adam Name writes in his book about the Cohen brothers, um, this book really ties the films together. He says, no sooner did that feeling of comfort take hold, he says, then he came back. He came back to consciousness. And with it, the harsh reality that his father is dead. And that he will be the next to go. And then I woke up. He's saying that. He knows he doesn't have much time left. And what is he going to do with that time? He can't. He doesn't work anymore. His father's already gone. He can't hang out with his wife. The last case he was on. He. He was kind of always lagging behind. He couldn't save Llewellyn. He couldn't save Carla Jean. Um, so what's he going to do with himself? And it's that harsh kind of, as as Adam Newman writes, it's that harsh kind of realisation that this is it. Um, what can I do? And then, as he says, and then I woke up. Cuts to his wife, cuts to him. Fades to black and you just hear the clock ticking in the background. You can't stop what's coming. It's inevitable. You know, in a way, this is more of a... This this kind of end, the ending to this film, even though it's much quieter and much much more understated, um, I think it's a... Maybe not a darker ending, but it's a more somber, cold ending than, than There Will Be Blood, which is obviously a, a bloodbath at the end. Um, but... But yeah, it's very, very effective, very divisive. I think at the time, I don't think it is so anymore. Um, but I think it was a bit of a divisive ending to the film at the time. Again, you know, the Sopranos did a did a similar thing, cut into black. But it's that kind of, you know, that realisation that what do I have to live for anymore? This could end at any moment. Um, but it's a perfect encapsulation of, of the themes of the film up to that point, I think. So I think it's a, I think it's a great ending to a, to a fantastic film. The ending scene to There Will Be Blood uh, starts with Daniel being shown passed out on his uh, bowling alley uh, with obviously some uh, empty alcohol bottles and, and food that he hasn't eaten with his um, butler or servant, whoever it is, standing over him along with um, with Eli. And you can hear him kind of snoring. There's nothing really that can get him up. Until Eli says, Daniel, it's Eli. 
and you just hear the snoring stop and Daniel saying so it is and Eli is um full of it you know he's got the he's got the facade going he's got this huge huge ostentatious cross um hanging from his neck um just completely false uh kind of foreshadowing that kind of false prophet thing and um it's just even bigger than it than you know just showing that his, fa his facade and his false prophet nature is even bigger than when they were in little boston um and you know he's he's pretending he's pretending everything's fine he's saying you know he's on the radio um he's been spreading the word of god it's it's been good um he says that they've had their ups and downs and sorry just before that daniel is we see we see daniel standing up and he he slaps himself in the head you know viciously viciously slaps himself in the head and he stomps his feet um you know he eats his food he drinks i was listening to um I Drink Your Podcast episode of, of There Will Be Blood, which is very good, by the way. Again, another podcast I do highly recommend. I will... Um, I Drink Your Podcast. Um, the first one they did was on There Will Be Blood, so it, obviously the name is, is based on, on that. Um, but yeah, very, very good podcast to listen to. Um, when they were talking about it, they this scene, they said that... Uh, I think someone had said that they thought that the, the big... Um, flask of, of clear liquid he was drinking from was was probably gin or some kind of alcohol i i naturally assumed it was water because i just thought you know he's standing up he's smacking himself in the head he's stomping he's eating he's i thought it was water i thought he's trying to rejuvenate himself because you know he's an old man at this point you know he's hobbled over he's got his limp um difficult for him to move he's he's a drunk um i thought he was trying to rejuvenate himself get himself ready for what he knows he's going to do and what he knows is going to happen um this encounter that he's going to have with Eli just wanting to get his energy back and be it be fit enough to do it that's that was kind of my take from it anyway and he um he says to Eli he said after Eli after Eli says that they've been through some ups and downs um he says to Eli he says are things down for you right now Eli which seems like a real loaded question almost as if he knows on the um uh, on the Cinephiles um, it's episode, I say episode, it's three episodes, they break There Will Be Blood down in over three episodes. They, I think it's, um, I think it's John who says uh, on the episode that there's no way that Daniel doesn't have his, his feelers out there and know about Eli, you know, know how his fortunes have gone, know about his um you know either listen to him on the radio or um it just keeps tabs on him um and so yeah it's almost as if he knows or he's expecting Eli to come to him to ask for help because he knows he's not doing very well similar thing with um the news that Eli comes to comes to tell Daniel as well you know about Mr Bandy having having died I think I think Daniel already know already knows about that and obviously he says in the in his later in this scene that he knows about um how Eli's brother Paul is is doing in his business as well. So, however he gets his information, you know Daniel seems to know everything. Um, there's nothing that's coming to him as a surprise at all. So, um, so Eli does his usual kind of very rude, very arrogant. You know, um, 
I want the $5,000 that's owed to me with interest. I want a $100,000 signing fee for the, um, um, for the bandy land. Um, because he, you know, and, and it just shows again, this just false side of Eli, you know, he's, I come with tragic news. Mr. Bandy is, is gone home to the Lord and he's very softly spoken, but then he just, you're trying to hash out a business deal and he's very serious. I want a hundred thousand dollars signing fee and I want five, the five thousand dollars that's owed to me with interest. He doesn't care about Mr. Bandy. He just cares about himself and what he wants to, what he wants and, and, um, getting what he wants and making himself, uh, getting himself out of his situation that he's in at the moment. And, um, and Daniel, it's this point, well, he's been toying with him anyway, but at this point he really, really starts to toy with Eli. And he said, that's only fair, um, but I need something from you first. And he makes him get up and say, I am a false prophet and God is a superstition. And it's just a complete reflection of the baptism scene. He's, um, Daniel is um making it into a into a reenactment you know he sat down he gets Eli to stand up so they're in the same positions as they were um he says you know pretend this is your congregate you're talking to your congregation talk say it louder say it again say it um and and Eli says it Dana's performance is is great every time he says it you can just see something chipping away at him and the facade coming down and the it's just everything being broken down and it's just it's he's being he's being mentally and emotionally broken down by by saying these things um the smiles withering from his face he's starting to cry he's just turning to complete submission of daniel and self-pity feeling sorry for himself and then daniel gives him the double whammy straight away as soon as he's finished saying it saying those fields have already been drilled so not only has Daniel just made Eli face the fact that he is a false prophet and make him finally be honest with himself and um humiliate even though there's no one there but humiliating him as far as he's concerned God is there I suppose um but then also straight away those fields have already been drilled this leverage that you think you have over me and these this um this thing that you're counting on which will which will change your circumstances for the better, is is completely false. It's not going to happen. And it, again, it's this double whammy before a, an actual double whammy that's coming obviously later in the in the scene. And then Daniel, you know, he's again he's playing with him, but he starts to take control even more, and he becomes aggressive. And he says, you know, do you understand, Eli? Do you understand? It's called drainage, and he's, you know, he's teaching him about this thing. And he says, you know, God, God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Um, and and then Dano just turns, you know, just turns into a child. You know, he's he's whining, he's blaming God, he's blaming the devil for his misfortunes and his desperations. Um, and Daniel then gets up and walks over to him, and he just starts to kill kill him inside with his words he just says these things to to Eli that he knows is gonna is just gonna kill him on the inside and there's this point where Daniel you know just from where he's been eating and he's drunk and he's been drinking he starts to salivate this the drool comes out of his mouth and the way he talks and says the words it's like he's chewing on the words like he's just been chewing on the um 
on the food that he's been eating and um and Eli as well you know it just whereas when Daniel had his did his baptism and he had all the light in the background he was very brightly lit from behind and he got what he wanted out of it you know there is a pipeline Eli's it's all very dark behind Eli he's sitting in the dark and there's nothing for him he doesn't get anything out of this everything has come to an end in fact and um you know just the things that he starts saying to him he says you're not the chosen brother Paul's the prophet Paul was the smart one he came to get me he has a prosperous business now he said I gave him 10,000 which is not quite true actually he said, I gave him 10,000 dollars like that and then he comes up with this line which is just I mean <laughs> the way I mean it's just you know calling somebody this and just at their lowest point in life. I mean, is there anything worse that you, so it could be said to you, possibly? Um, but just the way that Daniel Dillard just chews on this line, it's like, you're just afterbirth, Eli. Slithered out on your mother's filth. They should have put you in a glass jar on the mantelpiece. He just, you know, savours it, enjoys it, loves it. He, he can feel these words just sticking into Eli like a, like a knife and then um, he goes back to the bandy land you know that the oil's gone the oil's been been taken drainage and um, and at this point Daniel's you know he's towering over Eli he's like one of again it's that kind of the the symbolism of the of like the 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 oil derrick you know Daniel's the oil derrick and and Eli's the land he's the he can't do anything about this. He is the land that's getting everything drained from him. And um and yeah, Daniel is draining Eli of everything that he has. Um, like a piece of land in in little Boston in little Boston. Um and he almost does it, you know, visually he does it. He does the he does the classic, you know, if you have a milkshake and I have a milkshake, here's my straw. And it reaches across and he puts his <laughs> finger almost up to well, he does up to Paul Dano's face. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. And then Eli, just in this submissive, just kind of completely childlike, don't bully me, Daniel. And, you know, he just lets out this almighty visceral grunt and he pulls Dano up, throws him down the bowling alley. And It's when you see him just, you know, he gets the balls and he throws them down the lane at, um, at Eli and it, the way he's just stalking him, you know, with the with his hobble and the way he's hunched over and the way he's pointing at himself. He's like some kind of demon or something, just this unstoppable stalking demon after after Eli. Um, and Eli can't get away. He tries, you know, just breaking out some doors and he's just hiding from him and ducking the, the, um, the pins that um Daniel's throwing at him. I mean it's it's borderline comical, really. The the way that it just you, he, they're both just shouting at each other and Eli's just so desperate to get away and it's the way he's crawling around and Daniel's just like trying to see him and hesitating to throw in pins at him. But then it takes a sudden turn into not comical at all, where Eli is a you know, like a child or a baby. Or a small animal just cr trying to crawl away. He's helpless. And Daniel hits him once. 
kind of knocking him out down to the floor. And then there's just that scene of, there's just that shot, sorry, up at, at Daniel Day-Lewis when he's standing there with a bowling pin and he takes a couple of seconds. And again, on the, the Cinephiles episode, they talked about how he's taking that time to to think about what he's doing. But what I think is he's, he's savouring it. He's savouring the moment. He made his decision back when he got baptised. Back when Eli was hesitating him, as I mentioned, was was baptising him, sorry. And he looked up at Eli. I said it when I was talking about that scene. He knows he's going to do it. He knows he's going to kill Eli. And he's savouring that moment. He, said he knows this is the moment when he's going to do it. And then just... Boom! Crunch two wax with the, with the pin. And the, the blood start seeping out everywhere you know there will be blood literally there's blood it's the, just like the oil was seeping out everywhere all over um daniel daniel's life and then he just sits down and it's all calm and his butler comes down asks if he's okay and just that final line that final line I'm finished. I don't think I've ever known a, a line to be so a final line of a film to be so have so many meanings to it. So many meanings. It's just it means so much. I'm just two simple words. I'm finished. He's finished with his guest. He can be taken away now. My life is finished. I'm gonna go to jail or I'm gonna I'm gonna die soon. Um, my business is ruined. Um, everything that I've built is ruined. I've finished my goal. This is what I wanted to accomplish. I've vanquished all of my enemies and this was the final one. Just so much that, that those two words, those two words mean. And again, just in comparison to, and then, and then just the, the cut of the, um, the, the, I think it's the Brahms concerto just at the end there, the violins just, I, I don't know. I don't know if there is a better ending to a film, possibly. It's, um, it just sets you on edge. Your eyes are wide open. You're like, oh my God, what have I just seen? Um, just incredible. You know, the, the ending to No Country for Old Men, again, it was jarring when I first watched it, but it makes you think, then I woke up. What's he saying there? What's he meaning by that? Think about it. But it's a calm, calm to it. You know, it's not tension being based. The emotions being built up. It's not a, it's not tension building. That scene is, is tension building. Oh God, what's he gonna do? How's this gonna end? Is he gonna kill him? Oh my God, he's just killed him. And the, but then that final line, I'm finished. You know straight away, it's, it's got five, six different meanings to it. Um, and you're just stunned. You're back in your, you're back in your seat. I think, there will the no country for old men leaves you rubbing your chin. Um, there will be blood just leaves you clenching onto your your cinema seat. Um, it's got to be there will be blood for me again as as the the better ending of the two. I think um, it just really really stuck with me. The final category in the um, immeasurable section will be um, the the making of the film and the performances. Um, 
And this is actually going to be the decider between these two films. At the moment, they are both on three and a half. Um, so No Country for Old Men was winning three and a half to a half as we came into the immeasurable section. And no, and There Will Be Blood uh, won the uh, script, the classic scene and the endings, uh, according to my opinion. So we're all square at three and a half each. So, uh, yeah, has to be a winner in this last section, um, which I'm going to run through now. So let's find out who wins. So the final um, immeasurable category, uh, or my opinion, of the, um, of the comparison between No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood, um, I did say it was going to be the mise-en-scene and the performances within the film. Now, the mise-en-scene I kind of discussed quite a lot during the... Um, the discussion of the the scenes and and the endings um of the films so kind of you know the 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 sound the um you know the the set direction the art direction costumes that kind of thing so i think i'll do more kind of just on the i'll base it more on the the kind of the general making of the film and and the performances therein as well um so i'm going to start with um no country for old men now the thing I really picked up from from watching it over again and 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 thinking about it was the understatement within the film, generally all the way through. Now you have these explosive moments of violence, mainly from obviously Anton Chigurh when he shoots people or uses the um uh the the oxygen tank, it sets the car on fire. Um. Uh, the the kind of the scene, the back and forth shooting shooting scene between him and Llewellyn uh, after they come out of the the hotel at night. So you have these explosive moments within the film, but then in between those, you just have everything's very, very understated. You know, there's there's barely any music within the film. The performances. Even though Javier Bardem's performance is very outlandish in a way of this character who's barely human in in Sugar, it's all very quiet. Um, Josh Brolin doesn't have a lot of of dialogue uh, to get through. It's all about action and things that he does um, within the film, and obviously Tommy Lee Jones is a very kind of quiet character as as well. So it's, it's all kind of under, understated throughout the film. And one thing I also found with it was that there is a... There's a lack of... Overstated emotions uh, within the film. Sorry, I was just trying to read my notes there. Um, so there's a lack of uh, kind of overstated emotion within the film. So there's no... Even though Anton Sugar kind of, you know, he confronts people that know he's going to kill them. Um, like Woody Harrelson, for example. You know, Woody Harrelson isn't begging for his life. He says, you know, you don't have to do this. I can I can give you this money from an ATM. I can tell you where the, the, the suitcase full of money is. You know, you can go to hell, but it's not... He's not... Obviously, he's scared to death, but he's not begging for his life. It's the, it's the opposite of, you know, um, John Turturro from... Um, Miller's Crossing, for example, he's not on his knees praying to him, look in your heart, um, that, that kind of thing. It's all very, 
is all very understated. Even when Carla Jean comes up to the to the hotel in um I think it's in El Paso, isn't it? And um realizes that Llewellyn's been killed. She kind of gasps and goes to cry, but it kind of just cuts away from her. You don't you don't see her expressing that emotion um of of her just finding out that her husband's just died. Um so so yeah, it just kind of and it, and it, obviously a lot of it is in a very kind of um is set in a very stark, unfeeling uh setting. You know, in the it's in the desert. It kind of that kind of setting corresponds to the 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 lack of kind of overstated emotion within the film as well. I feel. Um. So yeah, I I just kind of found that very, very kind of fascinating. Just that juxtaposition of the, the performances and and the setting and everything being quite understated next to these kind of explosive moments that that are within the film as well. Um, Adam Neyman in, in his book uh, about the Coen brothers, when he talks about No Country for Old Men, he talks about the, um, he describes it as a naturalism within the film. Um, so one thing that he says is the effect of such naturalism is hypnotic on a strictly technical level. No Country for Old Men is possibly the most fully accomplished of the Coen's films. So much like how um Roger Ebert in his review was saying that this could be you know the Cohen's best best ever work and they made Fargo um you know Adam Neyman saying a similar similar type of thing you know it's that you've got these you've got these filmmakers that are kind of at this point where they have complete mastery over their medium they know exactly what they're doing everything is so everything just kind of seems so precise everything seems so um even though there's there's this naturalism in it it's everything so it's just done so well you know um bill hader said on the um on the rewatchables episode you know like like i said in that scene the call it scene you know it's just those it's just those two shots that are just kind of showing everything that you absolutely need to see within that within that scene there's nothing nothing more needed in it in terms of the performances um so kind of starting from the kind of characters that are in the film the least i kind of mentioned earlier that the coen brothers always pick these actors that will play these less significant characters but they'll give them some depth whether that be in the way that they look the way they talk the um the way they deliver the script or um just the way they they act and present themselves they add even if they've only got a couple of lines they add layers into that person they make it a character so like i said um gene from the from the call it scene the the woman who worked behind the desk at the trailer park um tommy lee jones's uh deputy doesn't have a lot of lines but he's a very you you get an idea of of the kind of type of person that he is um so there's depth to to even those more kind of less significant characters within the film but then as you kind of work up the the cast obviously the 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 majority of the film is a 
there's a three-hander between um, Javier Bardem, Tommy Lee Jones, and and Josh Brolin. But also you have these great supporting actors as well. Woody Harrelson is in three scenes, I think, in the film. Um, but he's you know he's brilliant. You know, I counted the I counted the floors of this of this building from the street. I think you got one missing. Um, just that kind of the way he interacts with Llewellyn in the in the hospital, the way he kind of knows that about what he did, he spots the he spots the bag of money in the in the grass. His one on one with with Bardem is amazing in the in the hotel room. Um, yeah, it's just he he brings he brings an awful lot to to the film in 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 those kind of few scenes that he's in. Um, Kelly MacDonald, I mean, you know, this is a a Scottish actress who, if you didn't know that she was Scottish, you would simply guess that she was, yeah, just this Southern Texan um, uh, actress kind of playing this role. She, do, she does the accent so perfectly. I remember I saw on the, I think it was on the making of, um, Tommy Lee Jones was was talking about him when he first heard that she was she got the part. He was very unsure. It was like, how is she gonna gonna do this? And then he says she he turns up on the on the set and she's talking in that accent and playing it in such a way it's like it's absolutely incredible the way that she did it. Um Adam Neyman says says about her actually specifically in in the um in the book. He says um as the lone significant female McDonald's Carter Jean is not frequently discussed in critical appreciations of No Country for Old Men. The positioning of her last scene as a final reckoning with and rejection of the villain's ethos shows that it should be. It's as if Carla Jean's stubbornness is what finally throws her killer off his course. So this is the point where in that scene her rejection her First of all, her kind of, yeah, quiet standing up to to Shigur and rejection of partaking in the, in the coin toss. You know, he's almost, he almost shows some, some empathy at that point. You know, he almost shows a little bit of emotion at that point. But then it cuts away and you know that it's not ended well when he walks out of that house. But... Like Naaman says, he um, he's thrown off course. He's taken aback by it because he's obviously not aware of what's going on, or he has got all his senses about him, and he gets into his car crash. Um, I think she's she's a really good she's a really good character within the film, and and also just kind of going back to the the emotions side of things. I know that <clears throat> again. I haven't read the book, but I know I've heard it described that the that scene within the book, um, she. Carla Jean reacts in a much more emotional, hysterical way. She hasn't got that kind of stoicism um, that Kelly MacDonald plays it with within the within the film. Um, Adam Neyman then also kind of discusses um, Brolin's, Brolin's role as well. He says um, Llewellyn is a hunter in his own right and Brolin 
Rowling plays him with a sense of steely self-reliance that's somewhere between square-jawed old, square old West heroism and the lonely bitterness of the disenfranchised. I, I mean, I just, I've, I've taken these, these bits from, um, from the book, Bad Name, because I can, I completely agree with them. You know, he's, it's a very physical performance by, um, by Brolin. You know, when you first see him, he's, he's trying to shoot a, trying to shoot a deer and he's using his boot to keep the, the gun steady. And then he, he pulls the, he pulls the empty cartridge out of it and he picks it up and puts it in his pocket. He doesn't want to leave any trace of um of him of him having been there. Um and then as he goes on and he talks to himself when he finds the drug deal and he talks he figures out that a guy's got away with some money, he's like you probably would have found shade. You you start to without hearing too much, you kind of start to realise, yeah, this guy's got some kind of military training or some you know, some kind of training to to, to know that and think that way, uh, the way the way his mind works and the habits that he has, and as I say, it's a very physical performance. You know, he's the bit where he um swims away from the dog and he he dries up the gun to sh to shoot the dog when it's jumping after him. Um, the 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 you know the back and forth, the you know the fight that he has with um. With Shigur, you know, he comes out and he's and he's alive. You know, Woody Harrelson says, "You had a, you met him and you you lived to tell the tale." Huh? Finds it peculiar. You know, he's that doesn't usually happen. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a it's a fabulous performance by Brolin as well. And it's a little bit and it's a you know um, at the time obviously Bardem won every award going for, as best supporting actor, rightfully so. It is amazing, and Tommy Lee Jones got nominated, I think, for as best actor in at the Oscars and, and various other awards as well. But I'm not too sure if Josh Brolin got any individual nominations, which I think is um is a shame really, because he does kind of he is great in the film. He really does kind of hold it together, you know, he's this kind of he's the centre of it, you know, he has to he doesn't have a lot to to say in it, but he's got to present so much with his with his physical acting. I think it is a it is a great performance. And um as discussed in the in the ending scene, you know, Tommy Lee Jones is just, is just fantastic. You know, his, the way that the camera is on his face at the end and just obviously the type of face that Tommy Lee Jones has, um, you know, that look straight into the camera and the kind of cragginess, it's that, that face that looks like it's lived a, um, a real life in that situation. Um, it's kind of burnt into your into your mind at the end there, um, so yeah. So I think everything about the the filmmaking, you know, the shadow coming across at the start of the film, the forebodingness of that, the this that shot where um, Josh Brolin's running away from the the truck that's chasing him, and you've got the the storm behind him. Um, the film's just masterful in the in the way that it's shot. And um by by Roger Deakins, um, and and yeah, it's just a it's just a beautiful beautiful film with great performances. So now, just finally talking about there will be blood, uh, in terms of the making of it and the performances within. I mean, this is really tough because I have to say that it's since I watched it back in November for the first time, it's 
just stuck with me so much. Um, and it is almost a perfect film, I think. Um, and I think No Country for Old Men is as well. But There Will Be Blood, I think there's just something sp special about it. It's... You can tell that how much thought Paul Thomas Anderson went in, put in to the realism of it, wanting you to feel and smell the this dangerous job that these people did um, at the turn of the century and how they how much work they had to put in to prosper into it. Um, Again, our good friend Adam Neyman uh, talks about in, in his book about um, Paul Thomas Anderson. says that um, Anderson, wanting, Anderson wanting a mix of authenticity and stylization. Uh, he gave 150 black and white photos from the period to production designer Jack Fisk to assist in the design and of the look of the film. Which I think you can see totally. I mean, just that, that again, just those opening 17 minutes where you've got Daniel Day-Lewis on his own with his rickety uh, framework to get down into the into the cave to do his silver mining. Um, absolutely perilous, you know, he breaks his leg doing it. Um, you know, he has to use dynamite. He can barely get out of the, out of the, get out of the hole. He can barely get his tools out of the hole. Um, him having a gun on his back on his own sitting in the cold wind, um, you know, hoping that no other prospectors come near him to, that he has to get in a confrontation with him. Um, the way in which when the, when the Derrick explodes, when they're in little Boston, when HW loses his hearing, you know, the way he has to run out, leave his son there to run out because he's the only one with the experience to know how to deal with this, with this situation. And they, um, they stack it full of dynamite to, to, um, to blow up the Derek to, to take the oxygen away from the, the, the flames. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, some of the shots in it are just, just incredible. Um, and it does have a stylization to it as well. I always think of the scene where the, um, the wave is coming over Daniel Day-Lewis after he's just had the conversation with his quote unquote brother. And he's starting to realize that maybe it's not his brother. And he goes into the sea and he's looking back at the camera at the beach at his at his brother. And then there's just this big wave approaching from behind him and the, the sound of it. Um is yeah, it's just incredible. And that's just such a great shot that kind of stuck with me. And I mean the score to it as well is just is just brilliant, uh, by Johnny Greenwood. I mean, no wonder they've um, Johnny Greenwood and, and Paul Thomas Anderson have continued to collaborate ever since this point because the sound does does so much of the of the work uh, and the music scores you know the build build and ratchet up that tension. Um, I was looking again at the scene where um, Eli is approaching uh, Daniel around the um, the oil uh, puddle to the point where he's going to ask him whether five thousand dollars is and and Daniel. Uh, slaps the piss out of him um there's you know the music there is building up you know there's something that's going to happen it's building that ratcheting that tension up the authenticity from some of the casting as well um hw was a local 
um, was a local lad that, that Anderson um, uh, cast to play uh, Daniel's, Daniel's son. Um, and again, you can see that in him just by the way he was kind of, you know, carrying the gun when they were under the false facade of quail hunting. Um, he uses a lot of uh, kind of local people in as as extras within the film, you know, within the congregation and um, within some of the meetings. And you can feel that as well. Um, and and you just and just you know realism within Daniel Day Lewis's performance. It's so I don't know. He's just such a such a presence um, throughout the film, and his his way he just gets up into the um, into Tilson's face. The um, the you know the the oil guy the guy the oil guy's face when he's saying to me. You look like a fool, don't you, Tilford? And um And the way he slap I mean the way he slaps Paul Dano as well in that in that scene, um, when he comes up to him after HW's lost his, his hearing. I mean you can just feel it. I mean the way <laughs> Paul Dano's nose starts to bleed, you kinda of think I think he's actually hitting him for real and the way he kind of um pushes his face into the mud and Paul and and Paul Dano's trying to, you know, sounds like he's kind of suffocating and trying to get his head up. He he's a bit worried he might actual might actually die. You know, it's, um, it's such just such a realistic performance from him. He's so kind of just real in everything that he does. Um, another thing I I heard from the the cinephiles guys on on their podcast was that the 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 baptism scene I think was only filmed about a day or two after that scene where where Daniel Day-Lewis slaps Paul Dano because um, Paul Thomas Anderson didn't want that to linger too long the way that Daniel Day-Lewis kind of dominates him and slaps him. So it was that type of... So in the film, obviously, it is a payback that Eli is getting on um, Daniel Plainview, but I think there is a a sense of Paul Dano trying to get his own back on on Daniel Day-Lewis for slapping him as well. Um, and just some of the brave decisions that were made on the film, you know, there was a different actor. Um, so Paul Dana was hired to play Paul in the film. Um, and there was a different actor hired to play, um, Eli. And depending on this, there's various, I don't think there's a, there's ever been an actual reason put out there for it, but the, if you read online and obviously if you believe what you read online, there is um, speculation that he was the this other actor was quite intimidated by Daniel Day Lewis and um, just wasn't kind of clicking the way that Paul Thomas Anderson wanted him to be. Um, so. Then it was just written in that that Paul and Eli were um, were identical twins and, and Paul Dano played both characters. So, um, you know, and that was, an, you know, the this guy had already filmed some scenes and everything, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a real brave decision to, to do that type of thing, to make that type of big change, um, in this big, um, in this big kind of, you know, budgeted movie. Um, I can't wait to see Licorice Pizza and I can't wait to watch The Master and I can't wait to watch Phantom Thread because I don't know, I just, I think I have always appreciated how good a filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson is. I don't think you make a film like Boogie Nights or Magnolia and not be, an unbelievably good filmmaker, but I think I just never really appreciated how 
much of a genius he was in the way that he makes film and the way that he writes films as well. Um, you know, I just, I don't think I can say enough good things about, about There Will Be Blood. But, it is very much dominated by Daniel Day-Lewis. I know that I said that Paul Dano, um, Kevin J. O'Connor, um, the, the child that plays HW, they all, anyone that's in it plays, puts in a very good performance. And I'm not saying that Daniel Day-Lewis' performance is a hindrance to the film at all. It's not. It's it's unbelievable. But it it does, it does, you can see why it wasn't nominated for an ensemble cast at the, the Screen Actors Guild Award. And why No Country for Men was and won it. Because you just have those, you have those great defined characters in No Country for Old Men. You have them all, they're all different from each other. They're all after the same goal. They all mix together in certain ways. They all push across the themes of the film. Um, I think in a, in a, in a more effective way than all of the characters as a whole do within the There Will Be Blood. I didn't 100% agree with it, but I think Adam, Adam Neiman is correct in saying that it is a little bit of a one-man show. And I think it kind of is a little bit, even though I don't see it that way, but I think it is seen that way by a lot of people. And No Country for Men does have one hell of an ensemble cast to it and is is very well deserving, I think, of having the um, the Ensemble Screen Actors Guild Award and, and getting the Best Picture Oscar. So I think, even though I'm a little bit surprised by this, <laughs> I think No Country for Men wins that final um, category of the making of the film and the performances. So, yeah, No Country for Old Men have won this episode. Um, four and a half to three and a half. So, round of applause to, to the Coens. Obviously, you know, I'm sure this matches up with, with winning the Oscar um, for this film as well. Um, I really enjoyed doing this film. I do apologise that it is so long. I wasn't intending it to be around about two hours long. Um, I will try and play with the, the format again a little bit. Um, just to make it a bit more palatable, but I do hope anyone who listens to it does enjoy it, um, does kind of appreciate the the effort I've put in to make it, um, and um, yeah, just thank you so much if you have taken the time to to listen to this episode, and I think I'll finish just with the the best finishing line that I can. Mine first of all. You guys take care of yourselves. Keep on trucking, and I'm finished. <laughs>